It's David, coming to you from the Philadelphia area. You're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. As we continue to trek through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus once again is addressing wealth. The title of this message is $273.51. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchester CFC.com. God's boy click. God's boy click. Well, he lived with Jesus every single day for over a thousand consecutive days as his understudy. He had a sterling reputation just about wherever he went as a man of spiritual beauty. And as a person who was just on the verge of changing the world forever in very beautiful and significant ways, he was commissioned by God to be his messenger of good news, of great joy in a broken world. He was hand-selected by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be his apostle and to spend three years being an eyewitness to all of his miracles and to his teachings. And as we hear all of these beautiful, glowing things about this person, we we just can't help but think, if that could only be said about you and me, I mean, who would not want that to be said about us? And the person who I'm referring to, his name, Judas Iscariot. You know, we don't usually think about Judas in those ways, do we? Anytime that we play word association with that name Judas Iscariot, it's always negative, it's always dark. And yet, if we were to actually be there over 2,000 years ago and seen Judas Iscariot walking down the street, we would have looked at him just as we look at each other. We would have seen Judas outwardly as a man who, who looked like he was a man of God. A man of spiritual beauty. And yet all of us know the end of that story, don't we? We all know how he betrayed Jesus, and we all know how his life ended. But what I want to do this morning is to rewind three years earlier to that day. On the day when Judas Iscariot was himself sitting there listening to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, Judas is sitting there on on a mountain plain. And he hears Jesus say in Matthew 6 and verse 22, he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the darkness that is in you is darkness, How great is that darkness? And then what Jesus says is that you you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then Jesus says that you cannot serve both God and wealth. What Jesus is expressing to us, in other words, is that if we want to know what condition our souls are in, just take inventory of what has captured our eyes lately. 
What he's saying is that whatever has most dominating our, our thoughts, our vocabulary, our speech, our hearts, our zeal, and our very life, that is what we're living for right there. That is what has conquered us. That is where we are looking to for our identities. That is where we are placing our maximum allegiances in this world. What Jesus is saying is that what what oil lamps were in first century Jerusalem, the eye is to the human body. And that when we can, can grow and begin seeing other people and start looking at this world through the eyes of Jesus Christ, This is something that will illuminate our entire environment wherever we happen to go. It's going to influence our actions. It's going to to empower us to love everything in our sight. But this is not a description of Judas Iscariot, though, is it? And that's because the light that is burning within Judas, just as Jesus says here, is the light of darkness. Well, Jesus is there in the upper room and he and his apostles have just had a Passover meal together. Now Jesus has a water basin in his hand and he's washing one of his apostles' feet and he looks up at whoever this is and he says, you are clean. And yet not all of you guys are clean. And then being deeply grieved in his heart and his spirit, Jesus makes a very chilling announcement to these men when he says, that one of you is just about to betray me. And now all of the apostles are, are just looking at each other like, what? What do you mean one of us? It's not me, is it? Well, if it's not me, then, then who is going to betray you? And as the custom was every year at Passover time, Jesus has has a loaf of bread, and he says that, that whoever I, that I'm going to dip this bread in the sauce. And whoever I hand this morsel of bread to, that is my betrayer. And as we all know, Jesus dips the bread, and, and then he hands it to Judas Iscariot. And as all of this is then happening, we find a couple of chilling statements in the scriptures where where in one of the gospel books it says that Satan had entered into Judas's heart. The evil one infiltrated his heart simply by appealing to his greatest desire, and that is what? It is the love of money. It was greed. We remember how later on as John is writing his gospel, now he has has eyes, and he now understands later on in retrospect that, yeah, evidently Judas Iscariot, as the treasurer of, the, of a money bag that the apostles had, he would routinely steal from his own brothers and keep some of that money for himself. And as we all know, there are many warnings in Scripture about this, where it says in 1 Timothy 6 that, that we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That if we have food and if we have covering with these, we shall be content. And yet then comes the warning where he says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then comes a phrase that, 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 that is usually misquoted in our world. 
where he says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some men, by, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many different kinds of griefs. This is where Judas is right now. Judas is ensnared to the love of money. And this is exactly what Jesus has been speaking about our last couple of messages. He's speaking about wealth, about treasures in heaven rather than treasures upon the earth. This is why Jesus looks right at Judas as he's standing there with that loaf of bread in his hands. And Jesus says, what you are doing, do quickly. And yes, I, I do believe that that is in reference in part to the cross, but, but I also hear Jesus urgently saying, Judas, you are enslaved to the love of money, to greed, to earthly treasures. But this is not something that you want to, to um, continue practicing until your dying breath. And then it says in the scriptures that, that as Judas slowly turns away from Jesus and his fellow apostles and he walks out that door, it says, and it was night. And I want us all to understand that as it says, and it was night in the scriptures, this, this is not just oh, you know, um, a weather announcement or a description that it was evening outside, but rather this is gothic literature right here. This is dark poetry as it says, as it explains Judas's eyes and Judas's entire soul is now nighttime and all the lights now have gone out. And you know, I've learned to be very careful anytime that I teach about Judas because Judas is a very specific, unique circumstance in that he was one of the, the 12 apostles in this time. And he played a significant role in turning Jesus over. Jesus even said on one occasion that the one who betrays me, it would have been better if he had never even come into this world to begin with. And yet in a whole other sense though, is it not true that any single one of us are capable of betraying Jesus spiritually? As the old expression goes, whether it's true or it's not, everybody has a vice. We've all had those moments where we have stayed up very late at night and it's all that we can think about. It, is, it has captured our thinking. It has taken our eyes off of the will and the way of Jesus Christ, off of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. And we are very spiritually distracted by it. See, the scary thing is, if if Satan could, could, could enter Judas's heart, then if we are not mindful, just as easily Satan can also enter our hearts. As Jesus explains what his parable of a sower means, he, he says that how those beside the road are those who, who have heard the message, and then the devil comes, and if he can, Matthew's account says he will snatch away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. And yet as for all the Judases of the world, what he says is, is that those on the rocky soil, soil are those who have heard. But when they hear, they receive the word with great joy. And that's good, but they have no firm root because they believe for a while. But notice, in time of temptation, they will fall away. 
And until we had moved to Westchester, Amanda and I had never lived in a house that had a basement before. And I mean, I, I love having a basement now. It's, it's kind of like we, we have a house that is within a house, and I love that. Have an office down there. And yet a lot of people look at a basement as being very spooky, especially late at night. I mean, my wife won't even go there in the morning time. <laughs> and yet any time that, that I need to go into my office and it's late at night, we have many lights down there that our brother, I imagine Jerry, has, has installed. And, and it's so nice that even at 1 o'clock in the morning, I can walk around in this spooky basement and know exactly where I'm going, why, because I've got that light right there. This is how it's like navigating through this world with the eyes of Jesus Christ and, and by living for the things of, of the world with which is to come. And yet the only other alternative to that, though, is to live with, with eyes for the world. And this is what it's like navigating through a spooky and a scary world for all the Judas Iscariots of this world where... You're walking and you're, all that you're doing is stumbling around. You don't know where you're going. It's like flying a plane blindfolded. You, you just know that it's just a matter of time before you're going to crash and burn. See, this is a very scary way that we live sometimes. And it's scary because Judas Iscariot now is for sale. We remember how on one occasion it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given strict orders that, that if anyone knew where Jesus happened to be, that he was to report it at once so that they might seize Jesus. And then all of a sudden, in walks Judas Iscariot to, to all these chief priests. Oh, you guys are looking for Jesus? Oh, I mean, I, I know where he is right now. You want to go see him? And yet then though, Jesus now, or rather Judas now looks at Jesus. And now he senses his opportunity. He asks the chief priest, how much will you give me if I turn him over to you? And we all know exactly what they came up with. It was, it was a figure of money, 30 pieces of silver. And as that price tag of 30 pieces of silver comes upon Judas. We know that he collapses underneath its weight and he betrays his Lord. But what we need to understand about these 30 pieces of, of silver, though, is that this is very, very, very significant, though. Going back hundreds of years in the day of the prophet Zechariah, we read in chapter 11 that I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, then never mind. And then notice that they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And so I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. After Jesus has been crucified on the cross, Judas he has some buyer's remorse and he goes back to the chief priest and he throws all of that, that money on the floor. And because it's blood money, they, they scoop up all that money and they buy a field which is called, it's called the potter's field. I mean, Judas doesn't even know it, but 
Prophecy is being fulfilled before his eyes. And of all of the people in the world who have ever lived, he is the one who is bringing this about. Judas may or may not even understand it, but, but as he has all of this money and he's treasuring it, he's throwing up in the air excitedly, this is blood money that is ultimately going to result in Jesus going to the cross. And you see, what happens when we are spiritually for, for sale is that look at what our witness to the unbelieving world now becomes. Judas is going to these chief priests and to these Pharisees who, who despise Jesus, calling him a false teacher, someone who has a demon, and he walks in and says, yeah, I spent three years with him as my rabbi, and let me tell you, here is how highly I think about Jesus. Then he starts using Jesus as a bargaining chip. He starts treating Jesus as if he is some used DVD in a pawn shop. We think about 30 shekels of silver. I don't know if you've ever wondered about how much money that might be. I had done a lot of reading last week about one commentator, Albert Barnes, who lived in England long ago in the 1880s. And he had done all of the numbers and he crunched everything and he said that in the British culture, what this amount was, 30 shekels of silver, in that time came to three pounds, seven shillings and six pences. And then I took that figure and using inflation as well as currency exchanges, a number that I came up with is what Judas is betraying Jesus for, more or less, at least in our understanding, it comes to $273.51. I mean, that is a Saturday night in Atlantic City. But most significant of all, though, did you know that this is a very specific price in the Law of Moses that, that also appears earlier? Anytime that you had an ox and it killed a slave accidentally, you would have to pay, guess what, 30 shekels of silver. If the ox gores a slave, the owner shall give his master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall, shall then be stoned. And really the reason why this is so significant is because I really don't believe that the chief priests are just randomly saying, oh, we'll just let you have these 30 shekels of silver randomly. But really what I believe is the reasoning why they are seeing 30 shekels of silver is to show contempt for Jesus. That this is how worthless your rabbi is. He is worth a price of a slave who has been gored to death by an ox. That is what your so-called Messiah is worth. $273.51. And you see, this is why any time that we have a list of the apostles, every time the very last name mentioned is Judas Iscariot. It's why to this day we have never met anybody in the world who's, whose first name is Judas. The only ones who name themselves Judas are 80s rock bands. And we remember how on one occasion what Jesus says is, what is it going to even profit a man 
If he gains the whole entire world and yet forfeits or, or loses his soul in the transaction. And that's true about Judas. And, and yet the very scary thing is about this is that, I mean, let's be honest, we, we all have a price, do we not? We all have a temptation that we would not want to be alone in the room with. I mean, what would we be willing to actually leave Jesus for if the circumstances and the opportunity were to completely, perfectly present itself to us? For a lot of people, that might be a hot affair. For other people, it might be millions of dollars. It might be revenge for your worst enemy in a very violent and destructive way. But, but regardless of what it is, as Jesus speaks about wealth, what he says is that we cannot serve two masters simultaneously. One of those masters must bow the knee to the other. And what's interesting about that word master as he uses it there is that this is the word for, for slavery and for slave. Now when a lot of us hear that word slave, what it conjures in our minds are, are old black and white images of, of black slaves working on plantation fields. I mean, slavery is one of the worst concoctions man has ever even devised in his brain. Where, while it is still dark early in the morning until late at night, long after that, that sun has set, slaves are just working from sun up to sun down. Sweat is splashing down lacerated black backs. Or maybe you are at an auction in the city square and you, you hear a war of bids, 1325, 1350, 1385. And, but as you look around, what you realize is that these people are not getting into a bidding war over animals or over property or over possessions. But rather what they are, are all bidding for is for people. For human beings who have souls, who are being treated as if they are actually animals. I read long ago about men and very brave women and, and individuals like Frederick Douglass. Where when Frederick Douglass was just six or seven years old, his mother died of literally being worked to death. Not very long after that, still as a, a very young boy, Frederick Douglass he can only stand and watch as his grandmother is released into woods so that she could die of exposure. I've read other very haunting stories from the 1800s about how in certain states in the South, certain slave masters on occasion would only feed children of slaves in pig troughs. And the only way that they could eat slop is that they, they had to make make noises and sounds and mimicry of pigs just so they could, could laugh at them as they ate and compete it for every last bite of the pig slop. Now, if you're a slave in the 1800s, you're not even allowed to even learn how to read or to write because you have a slave master who is making all of your decisions for you. I mean, you have a slave master who is owning you. You are not a man to him. You are an animal. You are a beast of burden. And yet it's remarkable, though, that 
there are even more slaves in the world of today than there were then. Where it's said that in this horrible thing called human trafficking, there are some 40 million children who at this very moment in time are being work slaves, are being forced, kidnapped into sexual slavery where they are tortured and raped and drugged. And their childhood is stolen away from them. 275 people just this, this, this year have been caught doing this here in Pennsylvania. And it's probably happening right down the street from us and we don't even know that it's going on. I mean, there is nothing that is worse than slavery. But having said that, though, as horrific as slavery was in the 1800s, and as ghastly and as barbaric and as primitive as slavery is in the world of today, there is a slavery even more ghastly, even more hellish than any kind of slavery that we've ever seen before. And it's a slavery that every single one of us have been enslaved to before, or it's a slavery that we are still enslaved to as we sit here this morning. And that is to the slavery of sin. Every single one of us in our lifetimes have arduously obeyed and have arduously worked from, from sun up to sun down in Satan's plantation fields. Only this is not the kind of slavery that, that one is kidnapped into or are forced against their will. This is a slavery that we willingly inflict upon ourselves. See, there is no worse slavery than the shackles of sin's insidious clutch. And it's really what the Apostle Paul speaks about in his letter to the Romans. Well, in chapter 6, he uses that word slave at least eight different times. And, and he uses it as a metaphor to us living in the flesh. Where he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not master over you anymore, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. See, what Paul is saying to us here is that every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter how rich we are, every single one of us is a slave. And if it's true that each one of us is a slave, then it's also true that we have a slave master. And so for better or for worse, day by day, we are steadfastly obeying some kind of a slave master. Whether it's the evil one, or whether it is Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do we know which, which slave we are and who we are most serving? Well, he goes on and he says in verse 17, notice how he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, notice, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. We are slaves of the one whom we obey. Either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And the greatest myth that, that Satan has ever perpetrated on the human race is that we can be 
slaves of both, is that we can live both in the flesh as well as in the spirit at the same time, and it's going to be fine. Jesus says you can't serve two masters, though. You can't work at UPS and FedEx at the same time. He says that you either have to love one and despise the other, or be devoted to the one and to hate the other. And yet, Jesus says that either you are for me, or you are against me. I mean, what did it get Adam and Eve when they were obedient to the slave master of their own desires? Very quickly, I mean, immediately we find Adam and Eve cowering, hiding, trying to actually hide from God, banished from the Garden of Eden forevermore. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. What did it do for for King Solomon when he was steadfastly obedient to the slave master of his pleasure? We find him falling plummeting away from his God, bowing down before other gods in worship that he once had smashed. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. What did it do for the prodigal son as he tells his father that, the dad, you are dead to me now. Give me all of my inheritance. And in our understanding, I mean, he goes away off, off at Atlantic City and he blows everything in maybe a week or two. And when his money goes, there go all of his friends too. And now we find, of all people, a Jewish man on his hands and knees in a pig pen. And I mean, he is that close to rushing up there with all the other pigs and competing for every last bite of the slop. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. And what did it do for Judas Iscariot when he was obedient to the slave master of greed and of the love for money? We find him returning to the chief priest, throwing that money bag, coins, blood money spilling, clattering all around on the floor. But ultimately what we find in the very last image of Judas that we're given in Scripture, we see a lifeless Judas swaying in the morning breeze with a rope around his neck. And his guts and intestines spilling out onto the ground. We are slaves of the one whom we obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And what will being slaves to the master of sin do for for you and for me? I mean, just that. Self-destruction. Trampling the Lamb of God underfoot, crucifying Him anew yet again, a grieving Holy Spirit, but in a word what it leaves and what it inflicts is spiritual death. That's why I am dressed all in black this morning. I, I, am, I have spoken with, with a number of people, Maisie, and she had asked me, are you Johnny Cash this morning? Are you Tommy Lee Jones? And I said, I said honey, I'll be whoever you want me to be this morning. And yet the reason why I am dressed this way this morning is because if, if our eyes are for the things of this world, if our eyes are for earthly treasures, Jesus is saying that, that your whole body will be full of darkness. And yet, the reason why I am called a preacher is because I've got good news of great joy for us. 
And the good news for us here this morning is that there is a beautiful alternative to how Judas dies in our circumstance. And that is that there is a way out of this. I mean, in that same exact chapter 6 of Romans, what Paul says is, but thanks be to God that though you were, notice past tense, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And now having been freed, present tense, you have now been freed from sin. You have now become slaves of righteousness. And then at last in verse 23, at the very end of the chapter, what he says is, for the wages of sin is death. And yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but that sounds like liberation to me right there. I mean, in my, wildish, in my wildest imagination, I cannot even dream about that aching joy that would have overflowed a slave's heart when he crossed those state borders or when that documentation had been signed and now a, a man who has only known slavery now all of a sudden is set free. You're about to see a 60-year-old man smile and have, have a face of a four-year-old boy. I can't imagine if you are a little boy or, or a little girl who's been trafficked for like eight or nine years straight and you break free from that kind of life. And man, I mean, why do you think that the Israelites are so giddy there in the Red Sea after Pharaoh and his army have been overthrown? I mean, I... I mean, just so happy that they just spontaneously break into a musical. It's why we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But, but more significantly, once I was blind by this world, but now I can see. Now my whole body is full of light. So as we bring this to a close this morning, to Judas's credit, and that's a phrase we don't ever use, but to Judas's credit, we see his remorse in the very end. We see him have that, that Acts 2.37 moment where, where he's like, oh my God, what have I done? And he goes and, I mean, he returns that money to the chief priest. And yet, tragically, though, haunted and overwhelmed by what he's done, he goes and he hangs himself. $273.51. That was Judas's price. What is your price? What is my price? What temptation can we not afford to be alone in the room with? Imagine that we all have one. And yet, now here we are. And I mean, it's right here in our hands. And I mean, we can taste it. We can feel it. We just think about all the things that we can do with this. And yet, very quickly, this is all that it's going to be. See, that is the love of money right there. That is adultery. 
That's a porn addiction right there. Where it looks like we are going on a trip to heaven. Yet all that it is, is a Saturday night in Atlantic City. We have pushed all of the chips of our heart, of our zeal, of our very being to the very edge of the table. We have gambled even our very souls, only to lose everything that once was. May we be those people who look at this world and who look at other people with the eyes and with the heart of Jesus Christ.